It's good to see everybody in their places. I want to begin by thanking Dana for filling in for me uh, for Sunday school. Thanks for doing such a wonderful job and teaching the people of God the Word of God. So thank you, Dana, for that. Today we're going to be getting back to the book of Revelation, but let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together to look and delve into your great word. We pray, Lord, that we would think well on your biblical text so that we would be greater conformed to the image of your Son. Lord, we do pray as we look at these final judgments that we would rejoice in our heart that we have been spared all through faith in Christ. We also pray, Lord, that you would reinvigorate us for evangelism and to live godly lives and to be awake until you return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, dear ones, I want to give you a little review because I know it's been some weeks since we've been in the book of Revelation. Recall last time we were looking at the bold judgments. Remember, you have three series of judgments. You have seals, trumpets, and bowls. The bowls are at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Now, these seven bowls, I recall, if you recall last time, I pointed out that many of the judgments in them are reminiscent of the judgments that God poured upon Egypt in the Exodus. You can read about these things, Exodus chapter 9, Exodus chapter 10. For example, the loathsome sores, you have darkness over the whole land, uh, that sort of thing. Now, why did John do that? Because he wants to show us that with these final judgments in Daniel's 70th week, the final Exodus is begun and is going to be over. Remember, what did God do in the Exodus? He saved his people from their enemies, and he brought them to the promised land. That's exactly what he's going to do at the end of the 70th week. He's going to save us once and for all from our enemies, and he's going to bring us once and for all into the promised land. Not just the land of Israel, but one day even the eternal states. Okay? So we left off at the sixth bowl, and I want to read that again. Because this is the battle of Armageddon. This is going to be the battle which culminates in Jesus Christ returning to earth to vindicate and save his people. So let's read it once again. Revelation 16, 12 through 14. John said, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river of the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast And out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Now, dear ones, last time, remember, I pointed out that I want you to notice the scene here is all taking place at the great river, the river Euphrates. At least that's where the angel poured out his bowl. Now recall the the excuse me not the angel but the river Euphrates is extremely significant for several reasons. Number one, it marks the eastern boundary of the promised land that was given to the Israelites. Remember that in Genesis 15, God had promised that from the river in Egypt all the way to the river Euphrates, that was the land that was originally given to Israel. Now, under Solomon, their land approached that, but it never attained that. And so those boundaries, if they're really to be realized, I want you to understand that they've never been realized in history. 
So if we take God's word seriously, these weight, these boundaries, a final fulfillment. And that, to me, also argues for a literal millennial kingdom because these boundaries have, as of yet in history, never been established. Now, the other significant thing I'd like to point out regarding Babylon is because the bowl is poured out on the Euphrates, it takes our attention to the great city that's built on the Euphrates, Babylon. And it shows that what the battle is ultimately about, it's about Babylon. The whole world is going to be giving its allegiance to Babylon. We're going to have a one-world system. And so the mention of the Euphrates brings our attention back to that. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. I want you to see that at the sixth trumpet. Now, remember, we're at the sixth bowl. But the previous judgments were the trumpet judgments. And at the sixth trumpet, you also had an army that was gathered at the Euphrates. But this time, the army was a a demonic army. Now, when we get to the bowl judgment, it's going to be that we're in today. It's going to be a human army. It's very interesting. The book of Joel does the same thing. Remember the locusts are a near-term judgment that pointed one day to a far-term fulfillment with human beings. Well, we see in a sense the same thing. The demonic realm comes first, then the human beings incited by the demonic realm end up creating the final battle. So let me just remind you what Revelation 9, 13 through 15 said. Here's the sixth trumpet. It said, then the sixth angel sounded. Now this is the trumpet, not the bowl. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel, who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Okay, so remember, a third of mankind died. Has a third of mankind ever died in history due to a demonic horde? No. I would think that some historian might have jotted that down as a passing note if that had occurred. Again, why is that important? Because I want you to see that the futurist interpretation is the best. Many people try to claim that everything in Revelation was fulfilled in 70 A.D. What are those people called? They're called preterists. Some people are historists. They think all these things just unfold in church history. Well, where in church history did that unfold? Well, of course it hasn't. So that's why it's good to be a futurist. A futurist sees that these events are going to take place in the 70th week of Daniel. Jesus described the 70th week Daniel as the worst time period to ever come. And I had pointed out numerous times, you can't have the worstest. You only have one worst time period, right? right? And this is it. It's being described. And so what Jesus is describing in the Olivet Discourse is synonymous with what we're seeing here. Okay, now I'll come back to another point that I want to make, but go ahead, Eric. Yeah, just a quick question. And if this is, you know, way off track, we don't even need to address it. But somewhere I got the idea that in biblical prophecy, there are near-term and far-term fulfillments. I think is that that is a valid Absolutely. Uh, type of a concept. Okay. Well said. In fact, we're going to come to one. Um, perfect segue. We're going to be coming to one. I'm going to read from Isaiah 13. We're all going to read that together. And you're absolutely right. What God did oftentimes in the Old Testament is he was teaching about this future day of the Lord that we're reading about in Revelation. But he would couch it. I wouldn't say couch it. He would, he would warn of it. And then what he would do is give near-term examples of it. 
So, for example, when he talked about Babylon in Isaiah 13, he ends up really talking about the end-time Babylon. He really does, and you'll see, because it's a worldwide judgment. But what's very interesting is he gives near-term examples. He says, for example, just so you know that I'm good for this far-term day of the Lord, look at what I'm going to do to the Babylonians through the Medo-Persian Empire. Look at what I'm going to do to the Assyrians through the Babylonians. So those were down payments, near-term prophecy, to show that he's going to be good for the far-term prophecy, the day of the Lord in the 70th week of Daniel. I think that's exactly right. So well said. Amen. Now, let me explain why I had everyone read the sixth trumpet. I want you to see the link to the river Euphrates. Again, the design of the sixth trumpet and sixth bowl, bringing us to Euphrates, is to show us that the battle is with Babylon. This shows us also that Babylon is going to be literal. Why? Because it's on their Euphrates. Was, is New York City on the Euphrates? Is Jerusalem on the Euphrates? No. But Babylon literally is. And it says within the 70th week that Babylon will be restored and it will be rebuilt. And so that's the battle. The, Babel, the battle is with Babylon. It is literal and it is also symbolic. If someone asks you, do you take Babylon to be literal or symbolic? You say yes. It's both. Because it's literal, it also symbolizes what the world is doing. Babylon is about rebellion against God. That's what it's about. Let's just remind ourselves, when did the first Babylon or Babel come about? Genesis 11. Weren't the nations supposed to disperse? Weren't there to be many nations, but instead they all gathered together, not to make a name for Yahweh, but to make a name for whom? For themselves. Okay? Now, what's very interesting in Hebrew, the term for Babylon is the term from Babel. You might say, well, big deal. Well, listen, the term Babel, when you read it in Hebrew, you read that in Genesis 11, it's Babel. But all the way through the Old Testament, you read Babylon, you'd think there'd be a little additional. You and I can see the difference between Babel and Babylon, but all the way through, it's Babel. It's the same Hebrew term, and it's designed to show you the link. And so the design of all of this is to show that Babylon is literal, but it's also symbolic of all rebellion that will occur against God in the last 70th week of, of Daniel. Okay, now, I want you also to see, and I'm going to have to pull out my pointer here, which is highly dangerous. Because I usually shut off something that's important. I want you to see in verse 13, John says that he saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Now, remember, who is the dragon? Well, that's Satan, isn't he? Well, Satan, of course, and then notice it's also out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, then out of the mouth of the false prophet. So the reason I'm pointing this out is I want you to see that there's a false trinity that's gathering all of the nations to this great battle. And yet at the same time, God can say that he is going to gather the nations for this battle. And what that shows us is that God is so sovereign that he even uses this false demonic trinity for his very purposes. In fact, we're going to be reading about in Revelation 17 how God uses Babylon and all of the forces arrayed against him for his very purposes. Okay, so never let anyone say, well, you know, that wrath we have here in the 70th week is only the wrath of man or it's only the wrath of Satan, but it's certainly not the wrath of God. No, it's all God's wrath. He's sovereignly in control of it all. Now, the other thing I want to point out and I have an underline for this, so I don't need to see if I can get rid of this pointer. Oh, I can't remember how I do it. 
No, well, anyway, I'll get rid of it. Notice also down in verse 14, they're going to be gathering the whole world. The term there for whole world, holos hokoimene, literally means the whole inhabited world. Okay, now why is that important? It shows us that all of the prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the whole world coming together against Jerusalem are now taking place. It's, this isn't just a localized skirmish. This isn't just the six-day war that we see occurring here with the Arab neighbors. This is the whole world. Now, when we take whole world, some people will press this to mean every man, woman, and child. I don't think that that's the idea. I think the idea is you have representatives, basically, of every nation. Every nation sends their young people to go to, to battle. That would be, I think, the idea here. So what I want you to see, then, is the whole world is engaged in lining up with Babylon, which is centered at the Euphrates, against the forces of God. Now, one other reason why the Euphrates is important is because that's where the enemies of God came from in the Old Testament. How many times did you read about the There's enemies? There's a question the over yeah. here. Oh, I'm sorry. Live on. Oops, hold on. We'll get you on tape. Is this that Magog and Gog war from in Ezekiel? You know, there's debate about that. Um, and the reason why there's debate about Gog and Magog is because there's a Gog and Magog battle that we read about after the Millennial Kingdom. So after the Millennial Kingdom, remember, Christ is reigning in Jerusalem. And it says one last time the nations, Satan is released. And by the way, this is proof that Satan wasn't the binding of Satan doesn't happen at the cross that we're reading about in Revelation because otherwise the cross would be undone. Okay, so the, the binding of Satan is a literal binding of him in the abyss, but he's released for a short time according to Revelation 20, and he's going to incite all of the nations to come against Jerusalem, and that's where Christ simply will call down fire and devour the enemies, and then you have the white throne judgment. Well, that battle is known as Gog and Magog. Now, some scholars do believe that there's a separate battle of Gog and Magog, okay, that we read about, for example, in the book of Ezekiel. And I'll have to just tell you, I'm not sure yet where, where I come down on that, okay? Um, because that language is so explicitly used in Revelation 20, I don't wonder if that's not the battle that's being referred to, okay? If anyone wants to read, though, a good article, I believe um, Thomas Ice, again, just Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, Ice, I-C-E, He's written a very good article on the battle of Gog and Magog, and he comes to, I think, some firm conclusions that you may agree or disagree with. But wonderful question, and we'll be dealing more with that, Levon, when we get to Revelation chapter 20 as well. Okay. Yeah. Anybody else? Oh, yeah, Jim. Yeah, explain to me those um, kings from the east. Run that by me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the kings from the east is this conglomeration of kings that are by the Euphrates, that are going to be lined up with Babylon. And they're going to be coming against Christ, uh, that is against Jerusalem, against his people, at the end of the 70th week. So remember, it's all the nations, but those are singled out to show us that they're actually crossing the, U, the Euphrates. Okay? So oftentimes when you see judgment come in the Old Testament, it came from the north or it came from the east. And that's because of Assyria and Babylon for so long dominated that region. And so it's going to basically be recapitulated again. It's going to happen again, but this time Messiah is going to intervene. And instead of his people being sacked and brought into Babylonian captivity, 
they're going to be rescued and redeemed. Does that make sense? So the difference between 586, when the Babylonians come and sack Jerusalem, is they're coming again. But this time, God is going to pour out his spirit, and he's going to regenerate them so they trust in Messiah. And the Messiah himself is going to descend to the Mount of Olives and fight for them, as it says in Zechariah 14, and we'll read about that. Right? So that's why these allusions are being made, to show us that, hey, this has happened before, and it's happening again. Yep. Is that clear, Jim? Does that, does that help? Okay. Very good. Now, what I want you to see also is this idea of the whole world and the idea of Babylon put together. And I want you to see how this, what we're reading in Revelation 16, is a fulfillment of what we read in the Old Testament in so many prophecies. One of them being Isaiah 13. In fact, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 9, and then we're going to read verse 11, and then we'll comment a little bit about what Eric had mentioned, this near and the far. Now, the reason I'm having you read this is I want you to see, again, how the idea of Babylon and the whole world lined up with Babylon, how that was prophesied in the Old Testament, that that battle would come, and how Revelation is just saying, yes, it's here now in the 70th week of Daniel, which is still future. Okay, so Isaiah 13, starting in verse 1, Isaiah wrote, he said, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, lift up a standard on the bare hill. Now stop there for a moment. Why do you raise up a standard? Well, back then they didn't have walkie-talkies or radios, so to signal an army, you would raise up a banner or a standard. So that's the idea. There's going to be a marshalling of troops here. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exulting ones, to execute anger. Now stop there. Notice he calls them my mighty warriors. Realize these are the enemies of God. Okay, so he's not talking about the Israelites. But why does he call them my mighty warriors? Because he's so sovereign, they're actually fulfilling his purposes by their evil deeds. What you meant for evil, remember? What did Joseph say? God made for, exactly turned to good, right? So we see that same thing here. Um, there's one other point I wanted to mention to you. Oh, yeah, you know what? I forgot to mention. Notice at the end of verse 3, the term my anger, that term could be simply rendered wrath. Okay? So this is the wrath of God. That's what's happening. So let's continue then in verse 4. It says, a sound of tumult on the mountains, like that of many people, a sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. So notice the plural nations. Yahweh of hosts is mustering the army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons, the Lord and his instruments of indignation. Stop there for a moment again. Notice the term indignation, that's the NASB. Again, that's the term wrath. Okay, so this is the wrath of God. Notice it's to destroy the whole land. Well, he says, now remember, this is the day of the Lord. He says, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. Now, notice verse 8. He says, they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment their faces aflame. So let's stop there in verse 8 for just a moment. Notice the term pains. In the Greek Septuagint, that's the term odin. That's the very term that Jesus uses to talk about the birth pangs 
in the Olivet Discourse. It's the identical term that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he says that destruction comes suddenly upon them like a woman in Odin, labor pains. Okay? So what's being described here is the future day of the Lord. Now, what's interesting is we won't read all of Isaiah 13. We'd be here for the rest of the hour. But what you'll find, and I think it's around verse 15 onward, is this is the far-term day of the Lord that we're reading about in Revelation. But what God does through his prophet Isaiah is he gives near-term examples. He'll talk about how he's going to send the Medo-Persians to destroy Babylon. And then if you fast forward into Isaiah 14, he says, oh, and yes, I'm also going to destroy Assyria at the hands of Babylon. Now, when did all of those destructions take place? Well, they occurred shortly after Isaiah's day. Are you with me? So that was the near-term fulfillment. So the near-term fulfillment is like a down payment that shows us that God is good for the future far-term day of the Lord. Okay? Now, I want to focus, though, on the idea of nations. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. This is verse 9. Cruel with fury and burning anger. Again, this is the wrath of God. To make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Notice, he's going to exterminate sinners. But notice if you skip, and I had to skip forward for the sake of time. Notice in verse 11, he says, here's his conclusion. Thus I will punish the world. Stop there. Normally, if God in the Old Testament is referring to just merely the land of Israel or a local location, the Hebrew term Eretz will be used. Eretz simply means land. But here, the term Tevel is used, which is referring to the, the whole inhabited world. It's really the, the whole earth. Okay, so I don't think God could be any clearer that this is no localized judgment merely on the land of Israel, but instead this is a whole worldwide judgment. And in fact, he wants to exterminate sinners from the land. That's exactly what we're reading about in Revelation chapter 16, the day of the Lord. And that's why Jesus talks about Odin, the labor pains in the Olivet Discourse. That's why the Apostle Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians 5. So I want you to realize how much ink is spilled in the Bible about this final battle. You read about it in Ezekiel 38. You read about it in Zechariah 12 through 14. You're reading about it in Isaiah 13, Isaiah 26, Revelation 16. The longest running discourse in all of the Gospels is the Olivet Discourse. What does it have to do with? It has to do with eschatology in this final battle. I think it's important. God wants us to know that he's coming back to save you, to bring you to his kingdom, and to vanquish the enemies that have so long terrified his people. He wants us to know those things. Okay? So the big idea then is I want you to see, remember how we began in Isaiah 13.1? He said the oracle concerning Babylon. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, Isaiah 13, thus I will punish the whole world. The whole world is lined up with Babylon. You know, I think Bob DeWay made a very astute point. I don't know how many weeks ago it was. I'm losing track of time. But remember, Bob, you had mentioned how we had a certain politician in America. I'm not going to mention names. You all know. But that politician was saying, well, we don't want national boundaries. National boundaries are bad. And Bob astutely made the point, well, God established the boundaries of the nations. And what is the desire to have no boundaries but have one world? What does that line up with? Well, that sounds a lot like Babylon and the punishment of the world. So those who don't want boundaries are lined up with the Antichrist, the false trinity, 
in the plans of Satan, but oh yes, God will use it for his purposes. Not that it's not sinful, it is sinful, but God will still sovereign, he'll use it. Yes, Eric. And, you know, just to underscore how important this is in understanding, we have a lot of liberal, nominally Christian churches, and they would love to see a one-world government, and let's all, you know, just have a big kumbaya with, and maybe a one-world religion. Yes. And, and we have liberal denominations that are going there. You exactly. Know? And, Eric, fundamentally, what the one-world order people are denying if they claim to be Christians, is the depravity of man. That's fundamentally what they're saying. They're going to say that we, of our own works and our own devices, are going to create a utopia, but what we actually bring about is hell on earth. And they're also, they're, they're also just denying, they're, they're showing just a total misunderstanding of biblical prophecy. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And the reason why is they spiritualize these things. Or they, they're historists, they say, well, this happened in history, and they end up spiritualizing the text so it doesn't mean what it really says. Yep, very well said. Yeah. Okay, so the whole world is lined up with Babylon. It's going to come against Israel. I'm going to read Zechariah 14 on our last slide. But I also want to point out now, oh, it did come up in red. Last time my colors were not coming up. Notice they're being gathered together for the war of the great day of God. Now, I think I mentioned this last time. But the, great day, the battle of the great day of God is an important phrase. The reason being is there are two prophecies in the Old Testament, and they're the only places in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where the great and terrible day of Yahweh is mentioned. Now, the great and terrible day of Yahweh is what I call the narrow day of the Lord. So remember, the day of the Lord, the broad, we have two different days of the Lord. Okay, let me give you an example. I've used this before many times, so bear with me, but some of you may be new. When I would ask my grandpa, what was the gas price in your day? I wasn't referring to a 24-hour day. I was kind of referring to his life when he was a young man. What was gas? Oh, I could buy you know, a gallon for a nickel or whatever. But I remember one time he was getting his hair cut in a mall, and um, it was the mall that he was building the day that John Kennedy was shot. And I asked him, I said, what was the day like when Kennedy was shot? Well, there I'm asking him, I'm using day for a 24-hour period. The reason I'm saying that is the biblical writers did the same thing with the day of the Lord. Sometimes the day of the Lord, and most often it's a broad day. It's a day in which a time period in which God is going to redo a reversal in which his people are going to be saved and the enemies are going to be judged. During the time period you and I live now, We go through tribulations, we're often abused, we suffer for the sake of Christ. There's going to be a reversal in the 70th week of Daniel. So with the 70th week of Daniel, it begins the broad day of the Lord. And the broad day of the Lord extends all the way through eternity. Because the enemies of God are judged and the people of God are saved. What is the day of the Lord about? The people of God are saved, the enemies of God are judged. But there is a unique day of the Lord, the 24-hour day in which Messiah uniquely, God himself, will descend through the clouds and fight for Israel, that was referred to as the great and terrible day of Yahweh. Now, the reason I'm laboring that is the broad day of the Lord has no signs to tip you off. There's nothing that's going to tip you off as to when the 70th week of Daniel will come. But once you're in the 70th week, there are tons of signs to tip people off to the great and terrible day of the Lord. Yes, Bob. I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of people are looking for signs that happen during the 70th week 
and they expect they're going to happen before it happens. Yes. And so yeah. then they're trying to figure out when the rapture is going to happen based on signs within the 70th week. Exactly. Now, that gives us a question, because I've talked to people that don't believe in Bible prophecy, yeah. and they like to mock us that do. But we have the 69 weeks. I think we all know that leads up to Christ yeah, and coming into Jerusalem. Yeah. How long is the period between the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week? Because some claim, well, it's artificial to say, say there's any kind of period. So could you address that yeah. there is a period and then how long is it? Yeah, absolutely. In Daniel chapter 9, and well, you know what, it's a great uh, question too that we should do more research or into. In other words, I need to point this up on the board someday for you, Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, it's the 70th week prophecy. Do you remember in the beginning, Daniel asked this, he has a prayer, and he asks, Lord, how long until you vindicate your name, you reestablish your nation and your city that bears your name? So Daniel's concern was that all of God's promises would come true, not because they deserved it. He even acknowledges in his prayer in the beginning of Daniel 9 that they were wretched sinners, but it was for the sake of God's name. Well, the 70th week prophecy is an answer to that godly prayer. And in that prayer, there's different divisions. There's a 69 weeks, which the 69 weeks of years, they're called heptaphs in Hebrew. They end up culminating in the first advent of Christ. Well, in the prophecy, there's a built-in uh, parentheses or delay because one day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to get rid of the Antichrist who sets up a seven-year covenant. Well, that covenant never happened during the first advent. And so at the end of the 69 weeks, you have the first advent of Christ fulfilled, and then you have a deliberate delay until the second advent of Christ. And there's a clear delineation, and I can show you that when we turn to the text. In fact, maybe next time I'll actually put the text up there, and you can see the clear delineation. What's so beautiful about the 70th week prophecy is to the very day, I believe, the very day that Christ comes into Jerusalem was prophesied. And Harold Honer, who wrote a book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, demonstrates this. If you do the arithmetic... The 69 weeks, 483 years, is 173,880 days. If you take that from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem in 444 B.C., it ends up being, I think, the 29th of April, 33 A.D., which they suspect was the very 10th day of Nisan. The very day that Christ comes in, the lamb, remember, lamb selection day? The Jews are to select their lamb without blemish. He comes in on the very day in which he's cut off, according to the book of Daniel. They reject the Messiah. Jesus says to the leadership in Israel, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. He departs the temple, just like God did in Ezekiel. Remember when they blasphemed God and they were in idolatry? Where did God go in Ezekiel? He went to the Mount of Olives. He left the temple to the east. Jesus, God incarnate, does the same thing. Where does he ascend from? Just like the glory of God ascended in Ezekiel, he ascends from the Mount of Olives into heaven. And it all is awaiting for the 70th week, as Bob is pointing out. So there's a built-in delay or parentheses within the prophecy of Daniel. So and what we can show it actually in the text. I think we right. can make a good case but for it. The, the amount of time is not specified. Exactly. And that's the whole point is that's where we come up with the doctrine of imminence. Imminence has to do with two facts. One, an event is surely going to happen. Number two, you don't know when it's going to happen. If you knew your dad was coming home from work, but he, you don't know when... 
you start cleaning up a little bit, don't you? Okay, dad's coming home. Well, what time? Well, we're not sure. It's imminent, right? But let's say he told you he's going to come home at 5.02. Well, you're going to goof around all you can until about 4.55, as much time as it takes to get a few things in place, right? Stop hitting your brother, get him out of the closet, or whatever you did as kids, right? Right? That's the way it is with the Lord's coming. And that's why he can say that we're to be prepared. Greg Arello, he says, you know, stay awake. Okay. So does that, does that help? Um, okay. All right. Now, um, boy, we got so much to cover in so little time. But let's, what, one thing I want to talk about is this phrase, the war of the great day of God. So please turn your Bibles to Joel chapter 2, verses 30 through 32. Now remember, the great day of God, the war of the great day of God, what I'm claiming is this is the unique 24-hour day, or it alludes to, when the Messiah comes and fights against his enemies. Now, the battle itself will take longer than 24 hours initially because there's the gathering of the forces, but what I'm saying is the Messiah actually comes down on a particular day and he'll wipe out these enemies. But I want you to see how this language is used, this idea of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2, verses 30 through 32. Notice the prophet Joel said, I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood fired columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now stop there. Notice you're going to see sun, moon, and stars affected before the great and terrible day of Yahweh. Okay? Now some people will say, Aha, you must have signs then before the day of the Lord. You do before the narrow day of the Lord but you don't before the broad day of the Lord. Because the sun, moon, and stars are darkened within the broad day of the Lord, within the 70th week, and they happen prior to the narrow day of the Lord, which happens at the end of the 70th week, where the Messiah comes at the Battle of Armageddon. Are you with me? Now, proof of that, and we we don't have time to read that, but if you read into Joel chapter 3, he says, at that time and in that day, I will gather the nations to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, Well, that's the valley around Jerusalem where he'll judge them. So it times it. It shows you that this happens at the battle that we're reading about here. Are you with me? So the the great and awesome day of Yahweh, when you connect that to Joel chapter 3, it has to do with the very battle that we're reading about now. Okay? Now, the reason I say that is turn your Bibles ahead to Malachi 4, 5. The only other time that that phrase, great and terrible day of Yahweh, is used is in Malachi 4, 5. Malachi 4, 5, here's the promise. Before, or excuse me, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. There's the great and terrible day of Yahweh. Now, Elijah does come again, doesn't he? Remember the two witnesses? One's like Elijah, one's like Moses. They come at the midpoint of the tribulation. And their ministry lasts how long? Well, three and a half years. And so after that, what occurs is the great and terrible day of Yahweh. So again, this will not be a sign that will occur before the broad day of the Lord, but it will occur before the narrow day of the Lord. Okay, so that again is an important connection that we see this term, the great day of God. I think that that's John's way of alluding to that very battle. Okay, all right, now with that, let's keep turning then to very important instructions that Jesus himself gives in Revelation 16, 15 through 16, notice we have a parenthetical statement. Jesus says at this point, through the prophet or the apostle John, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. 
and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Megiddon. Now, notice here Jesus' parenthetical statement is, and you can see it in the parentheses there, the reason I think John is recording it here is because when you come to the sixth bowl, you're coming really to the final judgment that connected with the seventh bowl at the end of Daniel's 70th week. And so now, what both the apostle and Christ are doing is they're viewing the 70th week of Daniel as a whole, and there's a summary statement. So the summary, if you're reading all this and you're saying, wow, this looks really bad, what should you do? What should you glean from it? Well, Jesus says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Now, the reason I point this parenthetical statement out and how it's related to the whole 70th week is it's a reminder that you must be prepared prior to the breaking out of this entire thing. Why? Because then the wrath of God comes. Now, what's interesting is notice this term. He says, I'm coming like a thief. Remember, Jesus himself uses that in the Olivet Discourse. Turn your Bibles again to Matthew 24, verses 40, just verse 43. I just want you to see how this is related to the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 43. Now, Bob and I did a lot of work in the Olivet Discourse related to this chiastic structure. If anyone's interested in that, you can either call one of us or um, you can also look at what we did in Mark 13. We'd uh, show you the grammar of it. But notice in Matthew 24, 43, the question that Jesus is answering in this section is when will these things be? In other words, when will the 70th week come forth? And he says eight different ways you can't know. And one of the imageries that he uses is that of a, a thief. He comes like a thief. Notice Matthew 24, 43. He says, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. Now, the whole purpose of Jesus saying that, using that imagery, remember, he's liking himself to a thief. Now, he's certainly not liking himself morally to a thief. That's not the purpose of the metaphor. The purpose of the metaphor is simply the suddenness, the without warning in which a thief comes. In fact, in Greek, there are two terms that are used for thief. There's a kleptes and a lastes. Now, lastes is one who uses a club. It's like a robber who will just bludgeon you over the head and then they take your stuff. Okay? That is not the term that Jesus uses of himself. He uses kleptes. Now, everyone here has heard of kleptomaniac or someone who can't stop stealing. That's where it comes from. Now, a kleptes is a thief who relies upon cunning and stealth. They're not going to club you over the head. They're going to come at a time that you don't expect. They're going to rely upon their stealth. Now, the point in raising that issue is certainly if Jesus had said, look, I'm coming at such and such a time, if you and I could figure out mathematically when he's going to come, he can no longer come like a thief. Okay? And so that's why we can't have certain signs precede the 70th week. The 70th week of Daniel begins with him coming for the church. That's unexpected. Now, it concludes with Jesus coming with the church at the Battle of Armageddon that we're reading about at the sixth bowl. Okay, so that's why Jesus is giving you a conclusion. Hey, in light of the whole 70th week of Daniel, you better stay awake because I'm coming unexpectedly. When the 70th week comes, you're not going to know I'm coming like a thief. Yeah, Eric. 
you know, it's, it's amazing how Scripture proves, proves Scripture because uh, the, the uh, Jewish wedding traditions, the groom would come like a thief, you see. And Jesus told us in John 1, or John, what was it, John 14, or I can't remember, John 4, 1 through 4, something like that. It's somewhere in John. Sure, sure. <laughs> but, you know, uh, that he's building a, a place for us and that he will come Oh, John come 14, from. yes. Yeah. Yep, 1 through and, 4. And so yeah. all of this ties together. Amen. Uh, it just becomes so compelling for a, a, a rapture of, of the church before the tribulation. Well said, Eric. In fact, it's interesting you mentioned this idea of thief-like coming and the idea of the marriage, because when Jesus gets to Matthew 25, which is still the Olivet Discourse, he uses that very imagery. Because what a man would do is when he'd marry a woman, he'd say, I'm going to go prepare a place in my father's house, which he says in John 14, and you don't know when I'm coming back. So what does he do in the meantime? He sends her gifts. Well, that's what Jesus is depicted as sending us gifts. He sends us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dispenses gifts. But while he's away making a place for us, we don't know when he's coming back. And that's why the the imagery of Matthew 25 is they had to be ready at all times. They had no idea when he was coming back because the groom can come back at any hour. So well said. That's exactly, it ties in with that imagery. Yeah, very well done. Now, let's talk a little bit about this idea of staying awake and keeping one's clothes. I don't know if I have an underline for that. Nope, I don't. But does everyone see that in verse 15 where it talks about keeping one's clothes, staying awake? The term staying awake is gregareo, and it's used in the Olivet Discourse. It has, this is the way I would define it. It means to be found in the faith. If you wanted just a simple summary of what it means to stay awake, it means to be found in the faith. Now, it's further illustrated by when he says, and keep his clothes. The one who stays awake and keeps his clothes that he will not walk about naked with men. The idea of keeping one's clothes reminds me, of course, of Jesus' discussion in Matthew, Matthew 22 it is, where he talks about how a man was found without his wedding clothes on. Do you remember they're at a banquet? And everyone there was part of the banquet except the man without his wedding clothes. And the imagery is that when we come to Christ, we're clothed in his righteousness. And so we certainly need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith alone, But the emphasis here that John has for us, Jesus Christ through John, is when he says keep his clothes. The term keep is tereo, means to guard. To guard one's clothes means to not allow them to become filthy. It means to guard your conduct. That's simply what it means. Why? Not because you're saved by works, but the idea is that the way you live is evidence of what you believe. And so if I live like the devil and for the devil every day of my life, it's evidence that I really don't believe. Okay, and so it's that sort of idea. It's the idea that we are to keep ourselves pure because we don't know when he's coming back. One of the greatest motivating factors in the Bible to be a person who lives a godly life is the fact that Christ could break through the clouds at any minute. You and I can die at any minute. You know, life is one foot on the, what is it, eternity, and the other on a banana peel, as the saying goes. We can go die to be with him, or he can break through the clouds and come to us. But the idea is to keep one's clothes means to you and I are to live a godly life. Just as Peter said, remember in 2 Peter 1, verse 10, he says, make your calling and election sure. Why does he say that? Not because you and I are justified by works but if you're justified by faith you're gonna live like it 
And that's exactly what Jesus is reminding all of us, that we're called to live obedient lives. And so what that means is if you're engaged in sin, this is a passage that should motivate you to say, I'm getting out of that. I'm repenting of that today. No longer am I tolerating that in my life. I'm going to live for Christ in the kingdom. Okay? You're either going to live for the fleeting pleasures of this world, or you're going to live for Christ in his kingdom. And this is a reminder to live for Christ in the kingdom. Yes, I'm sorry, Lonnie. Yeah, um, in my translation in, in verse 15 there, yeah. you got there, uh, who stays awake. Another interpretation, I guess... Well, anyway, I, I have the new King James. Yeah. And it says, blessed is he who watches. Yeah. Very uh, good. Is there other translations that have similar phrases? They do. In or? fact, that's a, that's a good translation as well of the term gregareo, the idea of staying awake. The idea is if you're asleep, think of someone who's supposed to be on watch. And, okay, the, their master's coming, but they're sleeping. Well, the image is that they don't really care. They're not excited, they're not eager, they're not, ex- they're not expecting. They're living in a, sleep, a, a, a sleepy state. So remember Paul says we're not of the darkness, but we're of the light. To be in the sleepy state, to not be awake is to be of the darkness, to live in that state. That's the, the metaphor that he's using. So that's a fine way of rendering gregareo, the idea of being watchful. That means you're living a godly life and you're found in the faith. That's the way I like to put the summary. If you want to understand what it means to stay awake, is to be found in the faith. That means if you're living a completely sinful life, the idea is to turn from that, to repent. It's always a reminder to repent and to turn from that to make our calling and election sure, as Peter calls us to. Yep. Does that help? So yeah, Gregorio, you could render it stay awake or be watchful. The opposite would be to be asleep. That means you're living in sin, you're in darkness, you're living for the devil and the fleeting pleasures of this world. Yep. Very good. Okay, now, we talk about keep his clothes. Yeah, guard the conduct. That's a good way. That's a summary that I had written down. That's a good way of putting it. Now, I also want you to see here, it says in verse 16 that they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. Now, what's interesting is, notice in verse 16 there's a they. What's interesting is that's actually a third person uh, singular, I believe, in, as far as the verb is concerned which could be rendered, he gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, there's some debate as to whether to render it they or he, because John often uses they, plural, uh, for a third person singular in context like this. However, I would make the case that it could be rendered he, indicating that God is the one who is actually bringing them to the battle of Armageddon. Yes, the demonic forces are clearly doing it, but it's all at the behest of God. Okay, so just keep that in mind, that you could possibly render that he, third person, uh, singular, rather than what they have here in the plural. Okay? Now, the other point, though, this is the big granddaddy of them all, and we won't be able to finish this today, is notice they're gathered to a place in Hebrew which is called Har-Mageddon. Now, most of you have heard the term Armageddon. That's where it comes from, Har-Mageddon is a term, two terms, har, which is mount or hill, and it comes from Megiddo. So it has to do with the hill of Megiddo. Now, what's very interesting is we take this literally. I think we have to say, yes, this is a literal place that the enemies of God are going to be gathered to. The question is, where is the mount of Megiddo? 
the reason this is so difficult is because, and maybe um, Dana spoke to the Jezreel Valley in his section on um, biblical geography, but when you go to Israel, you'll see Megiddo. Megiddo is simply a tell. It's a little mound because they were doing excavation work. There's no mountain there. So it's a Jezreel Valley. Tons of battles have occurred there. The closest mountain or hill is really Mount Carmel, where, remember, the false prophets of Baal were uh, smitten by the Lord. So it's very difficult to say, well, wait a minute, there's a hill, uh, the hill of Megiddo, but there's no hill in Megiddo. So what we have to do is wrestle with what does this mean? Well, there are several takes on this. Number one, some people do believe that this is a reference to Mount Carmel, that the, the nations are going to be gathered to, around Mount Carmel. The problem with that is I think if John had wanted to say Mount Carmel, he just would have said it, <laughs> right? Why obscure it by saying uh, the Mount of Megiddo, okay? A second way of understanding this is many of you are reading or some of you are reading Michael Heiser's book, he understands this is the Mount of Assembly, the Moeth. The problem with that is he has to amend the Greek text for Megiddo, Megiddo. He has to amend that, and there's no warrant in the Greek text, in my opinion, to do so. So we don't start amending text. In other words, say, well, it really should be spelled this way rather than that way unless we're given some clear warrant to start messing with that because of textual variance, etc. We don't have that here. Okay, so I would, I would discount that. The third take on this, where Mount Megiddo is, is that Mount Megiddo is simply a combination reference to the mountains of Israel. Now, before we laugh this off, remember back in Isaiah 13, 4, we read that? Remember I talked about the mountains of Israel? He's going to bring all of the enemies on the mountains. Okay, um, we also see this idea in the book of Ezekiel. In fact, turn to your Bibles, if you will, to Ezekiel 38, and I think I'm in verse 8 and 21. Actually, you know, I didn't even write down where I'm reading from. So I think actually I'm in Ezekiel 38, verse 20. Can someone read their text? Yeah, no, in 38, um, 8. Yeah, I'm sorry, Bob. Could you start in verse 20 and read that? I just want to see where I am in my... No, verse 8 is the mountains of Israel. Oh, okay, good, good. Let's start there then. Okay. Perfect. Ezekiel 38. Um, uh, let me start with verse 7. Be prepared and get yourself ready. You and all your company who have been mobilized around you, for you will be their guard. After a long time, you will be summoned in the last years, you'll gather, you will enter a land that has been restored from war and regathered from many peoples to the mountains of Israel, which had long been a ruin. They were brought out from the peoples, and all of them now live securely. Very good. And That's then, Holman Christian Standard Bible. I, I love that. And then, Bob, could you read also 39... Uh, Ezekiel 39, 2. Okay. I will turn you around. This is Gog and Magog. Drive you on and lead you up from the remotest parts of the earth. I will bring you against the mountains 
of Israel. Yeah, so you see time and time again this reference to the mountains of Israel. Now, again, my take on this Ezekiel 38 through 39 is I believe that this is a battle that will occur at the end of the millennial kingdom. I could be wrong in that, and I'll just put my cards on the table. But I want you to be aware that some take Har Megiddo, the Mount of Megiddo, as just a reference to the mountains of Israel. The problem that I have with that interpretation is why doesn't John just simply say the mountains of Israel? Okay, so there's another one that's more intriguing to me, another possibility, and that is that Harmageddo is really a reference to Jerusalem. Yeah, Eric. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, Dana. I was just going to say that the armies are gathered in that plain of Jezreel. Yeah. But there's a ridge of mountains that runs south of there. Oh. Clear out to the sea. And Megiddo is the main pass through the mountains. So the armies gather there and they want to attack Jerusalem. So that Megiddo is the place to go through the mountains to get down to Israel. I mean, oh, okay, to Jerusalem. sure. And so that could be it as yeah. well. Yeah. This idea of, and that would be more in keeping with this, the mountains of Israel. Yeah. This is the pass that you go through. This is the Jezreel Valley. That's where you have to go. Exactly. Now, there's another take. Let me just run this by everyone. There's an interesting connection between the idea of Megiddo and what happens in the final battle. And that's found in Zechariah 12. And here's why it's important. What I think John perhaps is doing is making an allusion to what happens at Jerusalem. Now, here's why. Mount Megiddo was known as a place, or Megiddo was known as a place where the Israelites mourned. They mourned for the loss of a very godly king who had brought reform named Josiah. This happened in 609 B.C. He was smitten by the pharaoh Necho in battle. And so there was a national mourning that occurred at Megiddo. Well, at the same time, what happens at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, there's going to be a national mourning of Israel where they will look upon the one whom they've pierced and they'll finally enter into faith with him. And that would indicate that there's a link then, I think, between Megiddo and what happens at this last battle at Jerusalem. I'll show you why. We'll read. Zechariah 12, verses 12 through 13. This, again, is more information about the last battle. Just think about how much is ink is spilled about it. Zechariah 12, 12 through 3, behold, he says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that it will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Do you always notice here at the end of verse 3, it says, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Does everyone see that? That's what we're reading about at the sixth bowl. That's what we're reading about. All the nations are going to be gathered against it. That's what we're reading about in Isaiah. That's the promise that one day God is going to gather all the nations against Israel. And notice how many times Jerusalem is singled out. So where is the final battle going to occur? It's going to occur at Jerusalem ultimately. Okay, now let's keep reading. Zechariah 12, 9 through 11. It says, and in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Notice how many times Jerusalem is mentioned again. But notice there's a big difference now. This has never happened in history. Verse 10, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like their bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. Can someone read for me 
John 1937. Because I want you to see, does everyone see where it says that they will mourn for him? They'll look upon the one whom they'd pierced, and then they will mourn for him? You're going to see this alluded to in John 1937, except a key part is left out. Bob has it. Thank you, Bob. Well, I'll start with verse 36. Yes. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says they will look on, they will look at the one they pierced. Yeah. Now, did you hear what Bob said? He read to you John 19.37. It says they'll look upon the one whom they pierced. But then John cuts that off. He doesn't go any further. He doesn't say, and they'll mourn for the one whom they pierced as one mourns for an only child. He leaves out the mourning. This is the same thing that Jesus did at the synagogue. When Remember, he's citing Isaiah 61, and he says, I've been, uh, I've been anointed to proclaim liberty to the captives and to proclaim good news. And he talks all, but he leaves off the last part of the verse, which is, has to do with the vengeance, the day of vengeance of God. So that awaits the second coming. So the point is, in John 19.37, there's an allusion to Zechariah 12.10, that they'll look upon the one whom they pierced, but then John stops it because it's at the second advent where they are given the grace to believe. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 11, one day all Israel will be saved, where they're given the grace to mourn for their Messiah and they come to faith, okay? Now, um, we don't have time to, we'll, we'll get into this again more next time, but let me leave you with this. Harmageddon could be the mountain that's, the mount that is, in fact, in keeping with the morning that occurred at Megiddo. In other words, the, the, mount, the morning that will occur at Megiddo is actually going to happen in Jerusalem where the people mourn for their Messiah when he comes. And so perhaps John is picking on that because you're going to see that the morning that occurred in Jerusalem is one day going to be so great, it was like the morning that happened at Megiddo when they lost Josiah. That's how deeply their grief will be that they had missed their Messiah for so many centuries, but it, in fact, they will come to saving faith. But we'll continue this next time. I think also we have to consider what Dana is saying. So I'm not going to give you a firm conclusion on this, but we'll come up with some ideas about where this battle of Armageddon takes place. But let's bow our heads in prayer for the, the sake of time here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that we can gather together to look at your great promises. Lord, I do pray that in light of Jesus' admonition that we are to stay awake, and that we are to guard our clothing, that in light of these coming judgments, that if there is sin in our lives, that we would turn from it today, that this coming and these judgments would always be a reminder that we want to seek you and your kingdom, that we want to turn from the fleeting pleasures of this world and obey you, not because we earn salvation through works, but, Lord, allow us to, by faith, be those who end up being pleasing to you through the way we live our lives. We ask that you would accomplish that through us for the sake of your great name. In Jesus we pray, amen.